I'm just here so I won't get fined. Gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! It's got to be one of the dumbest calls offensively in Super Bowl history. Are you kidding me? Hard hit into right. Back at the wall. Two game. Big puppy. The grand slam. Five seconds left in the game. Do you believe in miracles? Yes! Yeah, you're welcome along, uh, U.S. Sports. So um, Fidel Castro passed away in the last number of days and the uh, steady drip feed of Cubans trying to make their way in the MLB or in boxing away from Cuba, and particularly in America, has been a real aspect of sport over the past 50, 60 years. Castro, of course, himself was a massive baseball fan. Here's some uh, 1959 Pathé newsreel for you. Then Castro pleased the mob in another role. Baseball player. The game was for charity and the gate was a sellout. Castro's a man to reckon with in any field. Now a go with a bat. Anybody riding high in Cuban politics just has to keep his eye on the ball. To uh, discuss and tell us more, we have Bryn Jonathan Butler Butler on the line, writer for ESPN Esquire, Paris Review, Review, amongst others. Uh, Good afternoon, Bryn. Good afternoon. How are you? Very well. So uh, talk to us about uh, Cuban baseballers in particular and... um, their efforts and their attempts to try and make it in the MLB. Yeah, well, when Fidel Castro rose to power, he banned all professional sport on the island of Cuba uh, in 1962. So right from the get-go, these guys who were supremely talented had to make a choice between staying on the island and, and making the same money as somebody selling peanuts on a street corner or uh, abandoning their family, abandoning their country, and and being branded as traitors by Fidel Castro and and the government. Mm. It's been very, very difficult for these guys for decades, and only fairly recently have we seen notable figures like El Duque and a handful more in recent years, such as Yasiel Puig making headlines around the world, um, being smuggled off the island in, in a very insidious incredibly lucrative human smuggling operation, mostly to Mexico. Mm. An interesting point you made in a piece you wrote about uh, Obama's visit to Havana earlier this year, back in March. And I guess it pointed out something which is fairly obvious, really, when you stop and think about it for a moment, is that this is far from a universal success story. And you spoke to one former agent uh, and current baseball consultant who'd represented several Cuban players. And he made the point that really he thinks upwards of 80% who leave within five, six years, you know, within the last five or six years are now marooned. That's absolutely true. They go to third countries so that they have the option of playing on any baseball team instead of entering the draft. And yeah, probably much higher than 80% of the people who've risked their lives and abandoned their family end up leaving one island to be stranded in another island. Mm. Um, And you just don't hear those stories because people want to hear about the success stories, not the, the failures of people who are misguided in making an assessment of their ability to compete on the marketplace of, of baseball diamonds in the United States. And going back home for those players isn't an option, presumably? No, it's not. Um, it's possible that there could be changes. We've seen some of the players, the star players who made it um, in Major League Baseball, be invited back. That was pretty much totally unprecedented. Um, most of them were afraid of being arrested if they ever set foot on the island to see their relatives. 
Um, so you are seeing some thawing with, with Obama's visit. Um, that was the first time in 88 years that a U.S. president visited the island. Um, but with Donald Trump and, and a lot of the rhetoric that he's had um, toward the exile community in Miami of supporting their views, um, he'd like to roll back everything that Obama's done to try to open up business, open up tourism, and open up people-to-people uh, -people meetings, um, which, which, in my view, is a, a real shame because I think it's been very positive and instrumental in making some, some good changes on the island. Mm. How many Cubans are currently playing Major League Baseball? Oh, I, the exact number is in that article. Um, 24, you say in the article, so that's probably still pretty much it. That is, except for the baseball player who, or Jose Fernandez, who just died. So it's yeah, it's twenty four, twenty three hmm. currently. Yeah, and dozens more, presumably in the minor leagues. Yes, and and as a result of of you know how lucrative it is for these guys to leave making twenty dollars a month in Cuba or signing for twenty, thirty, forty million dollars in in the major leagues. Yeah. Um, the Cuban League, which was once extraordinary of, of extraordinary quality, has now been absolutely gutted. Um, Cuban baseball is at the lowest level it's been in, in half a century. Yeah. yeah. Because you point out in the piece the extent of the domination, even in relatively recent times, if you take it, that Castro banned professional sports in 62, where you say, beginning in 1987... The Cuban juggernaut won an astonishing 152 games in a row, cleaning up at every Olympics, Pan Am Games, major tournament they played. For decades in amateur boxing, baseball, Cuba dominated the world like the, uh, the Harlem Globetrotters. So 152 games in a row. Yeah, I mean, I, it was just the same way the United States used Bobby Fischer to take on communism in 1972 with chess. Castro was wildly successful using sports for an international stage to, to have a kind of geopolitical chess match with boxing and baseball, mm. and it wasn't lost on him that the irony of Cuba being better at America's game and, and one of America's most famous favorite pastimes with boxing, where they were also the absolute uh, powerhouse. Of those few, that 20%, say, if we, if we extract the um, figure of the last four or five years to the last 20 years, those, that 20% who are lucky enough to make it in Major League Baseball, those Cubans. Have they tended over the years to speak out about their country, to um, act as political tools one way or another, or have they kept away from all of that? They've mostly tried to keep away from it because, as I say, they, they almost all of them had relatives back on the island, in some cases wives and children, and they were afraid of, of potentially repercussions mm -hmm. from the Cuban government in punishing or reprimanding the family. Um, you nobody was really clear there's there's no like rule book of what the cuban government can do with mm -hmm. a dictatorship so obviously there's enormous paranoia um and a lot of these guys i mean internet in cuba is one of the lowest in the industrialized world so information was sort of hard to come by in terms of what was their ability comparable to players in the major league a lot of them didn't know Mm. So it's it's only recently that when they saw the success success stories in the late 90s with El Duque helping the New York Yankees win the World Series that they thought, well, if he can do it, we can definitely compete at this level. Mm. And you've seen with some of them make an extraordinary impact immediately. And it's quite something for an island with only 11 million people that's relatively impoverished to be able to sustain such a... Um, 
the, the powerhouse in sports that Cuba's always been. Yeah. You, Obama visited in March, as we said, and you went with him. You accompanied, you were one of the journalists who went to Havana on that 48 hour trip. It was, it was pretty quick. Yeah, I think it was 72 hours. Right. Yeah. So it was very striking that one of the key set pieces was the baseball game. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I, it was a very interesting event in that all, I mean, for as much as we hear about how um, Cubans are only making $20 a month, as I've been saying, um, what you don't hear about is what they don't have to pay for. They don't have to pay for a roof over their heads. They don't have to pay for any cultural event or any sporting event. It's all free. Um, so it was interesting that it's the first time in 12 years traveling to the island um, that just ordinary people couldn't get in. <laughs> it was invite only. It was impossibly difficult to get in if you weren't really um, related to the government or somebody somebody important. So that mm. was a strange feature of it that was very incongruous with the intention behind Cuban sport. Um, but at the same time, uh, Havana just stopped while that game was going on and um, Obama and Raul were only there, I believe, for three innings before they sort of snuck off and then you quickly saw an incredible procession of limousines or government cars leaving where all the government people were fleeing to the airport. So it was uh, unlike any baseball game I've ever seen. Mm. This was between the Tampa Bay Rays and the Cuban national team. And even you make a point which just hadn't occurred to me until I read your piece, but of course is blindingly obvious as soon as you see it, that around this huge stadium, there's no advertising, there are no corporate sponsors anywhere. This is not like what we're used to. There's not even a parking lot in a stadium that's for 55,000 people. Um, and it's one of the things that, for me, um, as, as a writer and a journalist, when you sh- I showed up in Cuba for the first time in 2000, and to see a boxing match where they didn't have enough money for a bell, so they used an emptied fire extinguisher with a hammer mm. to ring the bell round for round, I, I just thought, nobody will believe that this really existed. And at the same time, you're seeing talent that's performing that is second to none. Yeah. So it's, it's that contrast that's just so stark and um, indelible. Mm. And um, already it's, it's dramatically changed, as, as I, I wrote in the piece. It's, it's a different Cuba than when I was there five years ago. Very different. You might just explain some of the key differences for the listeners. Well, just there's a lot more money in there. With tourism, I think you're seeing where the the Bay of Pigs failed to sort of bring down the government. Tourism will succeed because it's just such a profound injection of money so that it's created this two-tier system um, where the intention of the revolution was to create something egalitarian. Um, Now, if you have access to Miami money or you're in Havana, unlike the rest of the country, you have access to tourist dollars. And... um, that can just just take you to a completely different way of living on the island where you will look at one apartment on, on a block will not have running water or, you know, difficulty with electricity or not even a, a home phone. And another building on that same street would look like it belonged in Chelsea here in New York, you know, just a, a luxury apartment. Mm-hmm. And it's it's. Uh, it's a mixed blessing because how long can there be that kind of division and income inequality? It's becoming very stark and there is a kind of conspicuous consumption that was absent when I was there in 2000. There was a a common sense of struggle Mm. 
um, that that's dramatically changed. So you really are seeing a society of have and have nots, which on, on the whole, I think is great that a lot of people are benefiting so they can improve their lives and look after their family. But if you don't have access to that, I think that your the ways in which you're living in poverty just become that much more severe and difficult to endure. And it's harder to, to believe in the ideology of a government that tells you your sacrifices for the benefit of other people when you're seeing um, some people just by virtue of being born into a family that has relatives in Miami um, not having to play by the same rules. Sure. And then a, a final question, not to put you too much on the spot, but I'm wondering from the MLB side, was there a culture of scouting missions to Cuba to try and find players who might be good enough to play Major League Baseball and somehow trying to orchestrate their travel? Or was it in a very crude, literal sense, let's just see what washes up and go from there? Oh, no. I I think that, I mean, if you, some of the first great players that were brought over, and and to this day, I mean, Yassiel Puig are reporting enormous percentages of their salary are being paid off to second parties. Mm. Um, you're seeing some agents and scouts working in conjunction with the smuggler, smugglers who are over there. So it's become a lot more sort of mechanized rather than this happy-go-lucky operation of, I think, uh, would-be opportunists looking to exploit a political situation. Mm. It was really just about economic exploitation of these athletes that were just operating as, as essentially uncashed lottery tickets so that if you could find passage to get them to the U.S., they, I mean, th- these people had never had a bank account. A lot of them would get a check when they arrived from Major League Baseball and not understand that they had to deposit it into the bank. Mm. They just, just walk around with a multi-million dollar check thinking somehow that entitled them to be able to purchase things. Wow. You know, these were people... That, so that, that literally happened literally that's a that's a that's a that's a fact that actually happened there were cuban athletes who um walked into supermarkets and fainted at the sight of a selection of products there's there's more than one soap there's more than you know one kind of soup there's more than one kind of bread these were you know and i've heard that as a very common thread with cubans arriving into the first world where capitalism offers such an abundance of choice that it's just overwhelming to people that have never been presented with that. Uh, mm. A lot yeah. of Cubans I would meet just say the idea of walking into a place where you can choose um, is, ju- is just kind of unfathomable from where they come from. Yeah, and what a shock for the uh, newly minted baseball players to find they can take one of everything and then some. I, I presume ML- the, the Major League Baseball itself has never really tried to regulate what's going on or look too deeply into what's going on. No, I think they've been very negligent. And, and you know, it's one of the things that I've tried to, in writing about Cuba and sports, is to say that very often it's these athletes who are attacked by both sides of of the Florida Straits for the decision they make or don't make. Mm. Um, And I've tried to say it's the decision itself that should be the villain of this story. And both governments are responsible for that decision becoming more lucrative to these criminals who are getting involved in smuggling them off. You you would think just for the sake of, of, of the humanity of these people risking their lives and abandoning their family, that somebody would be there to defend their interests, um, but, but but both sides are playing this kind of poker game with one another that I think is finally showing signs of um, be, just being more reasonable 
but but historically it's it's been a, a, a tragic story where there's a lot of wreckage yeah um, and as you're saying, it's, there's as much wreckage in the fast lane with the players who make it as in the slow lane with the players who get stuck in the Dominican Republic or Mexico who don't have the ability to leave. So it's 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 a pretty dark story. Yeah. Well, thanks for uh, telling telling us that story. Bryn, Jonathan Butler, always great to have you on. Thanks, Bryn. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Moving Ireland's dial. Call News Talk on 1890 453 106.